0: This is a download from BFM 89.9, the business station. Where's the try? And he's always prepared to give it a go. On
1: the ball on BFM 89.9.
0: Hello, it's On the Ball. It's Friday. It's the penultimate show of our football season. Um, We have one more after the Champions League and Championship playoff. So we've swapped people around. So today, we have the usual Monday crowd here on Friday. So therefore, we have and Sundare-san.
1: Hello, hello, Cam. Feels a bit uh, odd to be doing this on a Friday, but uh, nonetheless, here we go.
0: Yeah, yeah, your final turnout of the season. And we have Sean Maholtra. Hello, everyone. It's, uh, it feels so surreal. Last day. Yep, yep, yep. <laughs> and uh, so today, we're going to be looking at the... Uh, I keep forgetting its name the Europa Conference League Final (laughs) we'll be doing a Champions League preview as well as a Championship Playoff preview and then finally a season review I'm going to put some questions to the guys to find the best and the worst of the season that has just happened so let's start with the I just said it, but I've forgotten it again. It's the Europa Conference League final. It was AS Roma versus Feyenoord. Roma won 1 0. Uh, Feyenoord really had their chances. and uh, But at the end, Mourinho, Jose Mourinho, the uh, manager of uh, Roma, won yet another cup. Can I just, and before we start, can I just tell, say what he said? After the match, he said, "I knew the moment I arrived what it meant to the people. They had been waiting for something like this. This was not work tonight. This was history. We had to write history. We wrote it. Isn't that just so, Mourinho? Hey, Kish?
1: (laughs) I mean, Mourinho is honestly the greatest populist footballer has seen in the modern era. He is so smart at being able to build that siege mentality within the." uh, within a particular environment, within a city, within a club. And in many ways, uh, Mourinho and Roma were a perfect fit for each other um, because Mourinho had obviously gone through this major dry spell. And, you know, he's he's undoubtedly football royalty. But over the last, um, you, you could argue, five, six years, people have started to question his ability. Uh, to some extent, rightly so as well, I think, um, And then you've got AS Roma, a club that, you know, is also a football royalty, but for a very long time has just been disregarded uh, by the uh, footballing community as, you know, serial underachievers. And so so in many ways, you've got two characters, sorry, you've got one manager, a character, and you've got a footballing institution, um, two sides with a point to prove, and you merge them together. uh, And you look at the kind of signings that Mourinho made as well. He could have gone and bought any striker out there. He could have retained Edin Dzeko, for that matter, at AS Roma. But he bought Tammy Abraham, a striker with a point to prove as well. Because Tammy Abraham, for all his goal-scoring prowess, had always been sidelined at Chelsea prior to that. And there was always this constant raging debate about, is Tammy Abraham really world-class or is he just on the cusp of it? And that he will never break that glass ceiling. But he assembled a squad filled with characters that needed to prove something. Um, And I think that helped them tremendously. And and the space that Jose Mourinho is is in with AS Roma at the moment, uh, it it was to the point that before the final, there was no doubting. I think if you ask most people, without even them taking a look at what Feyenoord have to offer, without even them having a look at Feyenoord's squad, what they're able to, to put out on the pitch, I think most people would have comfortably said Jose Mourinho was going to win this final because he's built for it. He's built for finals like this. If you look at, at the statistics, final dominated, what, 75% of ball possession, created far more chances than AS Roma ever did. But in the end, Roma came out with a 1-0 win. It was a vintage Jose Mourinho performance. It wasn't pretty. It wasn't fun to watch in the eye. It was one of those finals that you were hoping would not go beyond um, the 90 minutes. And thankfully, it didn't. Uh, but for 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 the people of Rome, it didn't matter because ultimately, the only thing that mattered was they had their first ever European trophy.
0: Yeah. Hey, Sean, t- today we've got two Manchester United fans and everything that Keesh just said, Mourinho completely failed to do at Manchester United. Um, well, by my recollection, and also at Spurs. He was at Spurs, wasn't he? Um, <clears throat> uh, what, what, what went wrong for him at his, his latter days in England that he was unable to, to repeat that, that initial uh, Chelsea
2: I think, you know, I wouldn't say he was a complete failure at at United. At Spurs, again, I don't think it was on him. At United, in his first season, if you don't count the community shield, he won the League Cup and the Europa League final, both in his first season at United, which I think to every United fan at that time was like, I don't think any United fan expected it. But you knew Mourinho brought in that class. Watching United at that time was not fun to watch United. They played dirty they played some really, really counter-attacking football. But that's what Mourinho was good at doing. And he did the same thing at Spurs. And don't forget, he got them to a final. He got them to a final, but unfortunately, he was sacked just before, I think it was a week or two before that final. You don't sack Jose Mourinho when he goes into a final. Because if I'm not mistaken, Mourinho wins most of the finals he's in. <laughs> so, I mean, if you take his track record, he's won a trophy at every club he's gone to bar Spurs, but he was going into a final. I, I've always thought about it this way when it comes to Mourinho. I don't know whether his the way his approach works in England because I, I have felt over the last like 10 years, a lot of players in the Premier League are a little soft. Not soft in the way they play, but soft in terms of their mindset. And Mourinho is a lot more harsh on his players, a lot more, you know, he wants a lot from them mentally before it goes into a game. And I think that works so well in Italy because you have these hardened men who are like they're willing to go to war kind of thing you saw it at his inter days and you're seeing it again in his Roma days the players are willing to go out there and fight for him and not just fight for the club but they go out and give their all and play according to a certain system that I feel will work perfectly for him in Italy I don't think it's going to work in Spain in Germany France or England anymore but in Italy it's perfect for him
0: well uh uh, Keish, speaking of Italy, I'm going to make a sweeping generalisation, which is probably really old, out of date. But in Italy, the game is slower. And does that suit Mourinho?
1: I mean, you you could make an argument that the game suits Mourinho and everything, but let's not also discount the possibility of Jose Mourinho having evolved over the years and learned from his mistakes, because I think that has been the case to some extent. Look, in the aftermath of that win in that final, uh, there has been there will be and there, there will continuously be uh, revisionism uh, revisionism on on Jose Mourinho's 10 years of football manager people are starting to say stuff like oh maybe he wasn't the problem at man united or maybe you know he was excellent and and everyone else was the problem and my problem with that is it dismisses the narrative that Jose Mourinho could have really been a problem at his previous clubs and that he, he could have learned from those mistakes case in point um, There's an excellent breakdown of Jose Mourinho's tenure at Man United, how it all completely crumbled on The Athletic. I think it was published like last year, about a year ago. And this excellent breakdown talks about how when he came in, he undid a lot of the progressive uh, sports science departments within Man United. He had to shut down those departments, departments that Solskjaer had to rebuild again when he came into United all over again. Um, And Jose Mourinho was very stubborn in his relationship with the players. How... He publicly scapegoated Luke Shaw, a player who clearly has talent, but was scapegoated. Even when Luke Shaw was playing well, Jose famously said that, yeah, he's playing well because it's his body, but my brain on the touchline, you know, stuff like that, where you undermine your players, your relationship with them completely crumbles. Um, So there's a lot of mistakes that Jose made and he was somewhat becoming outdated. He was being exposed to his outdated methods, not just in terms of tactics, but also in terms of player relations and all that, right? But the difference was, um, after his Man United tenure, he spent some time um, observing how Lille, the French club um, was being run. I think they had a technical director by the name of Luis Campos. And under Luis Campos, there was this prodigy by the name of Joao Sacramento. He spent some time there. He was impressed with Sacramento, brought Sacramento over to Spurs, um, started to change the way he approached things um, at Spurs. and. To his credit, while he did change a little bit of things at Spurs, I don't think it was drastic enough for him to be able to have a successful spell there. I agree with Sean. He should have at least been left to manage that top final, even if you wanted to sack him. But I think at Roma, you're starting to see a very different version of Jose Mourinho. It's not a 180-degree change, but there's some form of change to his approach on the pitch. I think the team is being a bit more expensive. His relationship with the players are slightly better. Um, he's not. I, I. can't remember a season in which he has completely slated uh, or tore into his place. I mean, look at his <laughs> look at his relationship with Mkhitaryan at Man United, and look at his relationship with Mkhitaryan at AS Roma at the moment. Um. And, and when you take all those things into consideration, I think Jose himself has evolved. Um, and I agree with Sean. Do I think that evolution is enough for him to now come back to the Premier League and I don't know coach a, a big four club or try to win the Champions League? again. I, I really am not sure. But do I think there is a space in world football for Jose Mourinho at clubs like AS Roma, at, at other clubs across Europe with the same kind of history like AS Roma and the same kind of uh, points to prove like Roma did uh, this season? I, I I think yes. So there is a space for Jose. Well, I, I,
0: you make a good point there, Keish. but I wouldn't want him managing my team, which is presently playing in the 10th level of the English game. And, uh, and it's all because of uh, what he did to the Chelsea physio. Uh, I think that was just 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 terrible.
1: Yeah, it's one of those things that gets uh, swept under the carpet often. Um, but it is what it is. Yeah, it's one of those things you have to remember. Yeah.
0: The man's a bully. And in a moment, though, we will be talking the Champions League final here on On the Ball. Is it Off the Ball? I'm looking at you people, but it's a Friday and I'm so confused. Uh, on the on, Ball. On the Ball. <laughs> BFM 89.9. Deserved a goal, that. lovely return pass. Just wide.
1: On the ball on BFM 89.9.
0: It's on the ball, and we have Kishnan Sundaresan and Sean Mahocha. Now, Sean, coming up on Sunday is, or is it Saturday? No, it's Saturday, because for some strange reason, the end of the season will be the championship playoff. But on Saturday will be the Champions League final between Liverpool and Real Madrid. Two... Real aristocracy, Real Madrid. I, I, I just I, I got to point this out. They've won the European Cup, Stroke Champions League thirteen times, and Carlo Ancelotti, if he wins this, will be the first manager to have won it four times. And so, Sean, I don't know who do you think is going to win.
2: This is a tough one because I honestly thought Real Madrid wouldn't have made it to the final. I really didn't think it. I thought Liverpool would definitely make it to the final just based off you know, how well they've been playing over the last two to three years. And the fact that if you look at the run-ins, Liverpool's had had, in my opinion at least, a lot easier run-in compared to Real's run-in. The one thing that I think will, will really, really be a huge part to play in this game is which midfield wins over. Whether Thiago and Fabinho are fit enough to play 90 minutes or more in this game... Because if you look at Real Madrid, they have five excellent and fit and ready midfielders in Casemiro, Cruz, Modric, Camavinga, and Valverde. So every time I thought Real Madrid can't do it, they've proven me wrong. <laughs> they've just gone and like blown me away. I think it's going to be a really close game. You know, I, I've seen Michael Owen say that, oh, you know, he thinks it's going to be a, a 3-1 win to Liverpool. It's going to be quite an easy game for them. I don't think so. Of course, I'm hoping Real Madrid wins on my birthday. But (laughs) yeah, it's on my birthday. The game's fair on my birthday. Sorry, are you a Real Madrid fan? No, I'm just not a Liverpool fan. Oh, okay. Uh, I'm sorry. What am I saying? (laughs) Yes, Yeah,
0: yeah, by my mistake, yeah.
2: (laughs) But I think if it's over 90 minutes, I think Real Madrid will win it. But I think if it goes into like 120 minutes or more, Liverpool have shown this season that they've won two competitions on penalties in the FA Cup and the League Cup. If it goes beyond that, I think Liverpool have a great chance. I'm hoping for a Real Madrid win, but I think Liverpool will edge it. And I don't think it's going to be a, a, a walk for Liverpool. I don't think it's going to be a 3-1, 3-0. I think it's going to be a really close game. Uh, Makishina, is this going to be a
0: battle of skill or a battle of will? Willpower? Because if it's willpower, then Real Madrid have this one.
1: I, I think it'll be a mixture of both. Um, I think Sean made a great point in terms of the that midfield battle. I think the Thiago Alcantara fitness is a real cause for concern. I hope he's completely ready because uh, if he's not, that gives a bit of an edge to Real Madrid, especially since um, in the last two, I think the knockout games that involve Real Madrid and PSG and then Real Madrid in, and Chelsea, I think in both those ties, the midfield was what allowed Real Madrid to crumble. over. I know Karim Benzema and all that, you have all of that up front. Vinicius is great. Rodrigo is great. Uh, but it was Kamavinga that came on and changed the games in both those sides, in my opinion. So that would be a bit of an edge. So Liverpool need Thiago Finn. Um, But I think what could potentially decide this final is the battle between Trent Alexander-Arnold and Vinicius. Now, Vinicius is easily Real Madrid most... I mean, Karim Benzema is the main goal scorer, but Vinicius is their most potent weapon. Um, he's the guy that will drive your attack. He's the guy that will cause you so much of problems. Um, and it's just a little, it's a bit concerning that he will go up against um, Trent Alexander-Arnold, who for all his, you know, incredible prowess on the offensive front, um, he has been caught up uh, when it comes to the defensive side of things. If Vinicius played on the right, I, w- I wouldn't be worried because... No, Trent, uh, sorry, Andy Robertson is an absolute monster when it comes to going up and down. I mean, he's, and he's great on both sides of the uh, of the flank as well. But Trent, I'm not so sure. I think he has been suspect uh, in the past, even in the Champions League as well. He got targeted by Villarreal. You could see that happening. So that to me will be the the deciding factor. Uh, and it's not just down to Trent; it's down to how Klopp supports Trent because Trent is not going to change his his approach um, in 24 hours and all of a sudden become a more conservative fullback, it's not going to happen. Trent will still be asked to attack as usual. Now, under that circumstances, how do you then supplement support for Trent Alexander-Arnold? Who do you, who do you ask to cover that space? Whether it's Fabinho, whether it's uh, Joel Matip or Ibrahima Konate, whoever starts in the right-sided centre-back position, who drops in to, to close that gap. So whoever it is, I think that's, that could be the deciding factor really in this game.
0: Yeah. Uh, hey, Sean, I we had uh, on the show the the other day we had Giancarlo, you know, Gigi we call him. He's a central defender for KL. He also ex of um Swansea City and Spurs and Melbourne Victory. So I asked him um if he was a defender playing against either Manchester Manchester City or Liverpool, who would he be more scared of? And and he said about Liverpool was that he'd be scared of playing against Liverpool, but he understood what they were doing. And, and they do it the whole time. You know, whenever they get the ball and they're in the tack, everybody goes forward. Whereas with city, he would be even, he would be very scared because he doesn't understand what they're doing. And in a way, Real Madrid in their kind of like shambolic way, are like that too, because they, they only need to play well for 10 minutes and they've scored three goals. (laughs) And, and you didn't know what quite where it came from. Some outside of the boot, uh, Modric pass, Benzema (laughs) suddenly pops up. It's a goal. (laughs) Uh, I mean, is there something predictable about Liverpool, do you think, that that, uh, Real Madrid might be able to just
2: benefit from? See, what I've noticed about Liverpool is they're great in many aspects, many aspects, defensively and uh, uh, in their attacking sense as well. The one thing that's scary about Liverpool is that Every player performs at 110%, whether it's their front three, their midfield, their defense, even Alisson, when he's called upon, he does perform. So they can hurt you in many different ways. That's what I think Real Madrid will be thinking about, is the fact that it's not the same final as it was four years ago. Four years ago, take out uh, Salah and you have a great chance. This time around, you have Diaz to worry about. You have Mane, who's performing really well, much better than he was four years ago. And you have Jota who probably could come off the bench and score goals as well. It's not the same final as it was four years ago. The one huge thing that I think Real Madrid has on their side is experience. You have Casemiro, Cruz and Modric who I think have played every Champions League final that they've been in for Real Madrid since they've arrived and they've won them. They know what these nights mean. They know what they have to do to win these kinds of games. Whether or not their defence can cope with the amount of attacks Liverpool will have. Because I'm very certain that Liverpool is going to dominate possession. They're going to have many attacks. Whether or not they take those chances is another story. Because I know for a fact, if Real Madrid gets those chances, Benzema isn't going to flop on the night. He is going to score. Vinicius is going to create something. And Rodrigo has proven to be, I think, the hidden gem for the Champions League run-in so far. So if Real Madrid can nullify all these attacks from Liverpool, all they need is one or two chances and they will score. Like you said, they just need 10 minutes to perform. And in those 10 minutes, they will score. But whether in that 80 minutes, their midfield and their, their defense can cope with what's coming their way. That's where I think they have a great chance. Mm. Well, they don't have
0: Sergio Ramos. Now the one man in world football who can break someone's arm and get away with it. <laughs> <laughs> you know, That's a skill. It's a skill. Yeah. Uh, so, you two, put, I want you to, to make a decision now. Keish. who's going to win? And give me a scoreline as well.
1: Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm going to go with Liverpool. I, look, I know Real Madrid are Champions League royalties, um, and, and they, they've done tremendously well to get past a lot of the hurdles that have been thrown at them this year. Um, and they're absolute agents of chaos. Um, you really don't know what to expect out of Real Madrid. You can't. You, you can't, you know, predict the shape, you can't predict the game plan because they're very random and they're, and they're absolutely chaotic in every game, right? Um, but Liverpool, having had the season that they've had, um, the emotions that they've gone through, especially last week, um, I think they got like an incredible send-off at Anfield as well uh, after winning that game, despite losing the title. And... And just the wide array of attacking arsenal available at Jagan Klopp's uh, hands at the moment, I think I think we're really underestimating what how in, insane that attack is. I mean, Luis Diaz is a guy that was supposed to come in in the summer, but he's there and he's you know taken to it like fish entering water, and he's been ridiculously good. So I, I I think it's going to be a close game. It's going to be a close game, but I think Liverpool have matured as a team and they know how to handle this these occasions and so I'm going to go for a a slim Liverpool victory
0: I'll go I'll go 2-1 to Liverpool 2-1 because they
2: don't do 1-0 I mean that's just (laughs) that's just not possible Uh, okay then Sean I'm going to mix things up a bit I think Real Madrid have this and I'll go with the same scoreline Kish went with with a 2-1 I think I'll go Real Madrid's way the only reason I think Real Madrid have a chance in this final is because no one picks them as the favourite in this game everyone takes them as the underdog and they'll they'll happily take it as the underdogs because I think they have a huge incentive. You know, everyone said they couldn't survive after Ronaldo. Ronaldo leaving is going to ruin them when they go forward in the Champions League. This is their chance to prove all the naysayers wrong. And I think big time players, big time competition, this is when they'll stand up and make themselves, you know, legends pretty much. And Benzema for the Ballon <laughs> Yeah. Uh, well, first of all, I think
0: 2-1 is statistically impossible <laughs> in, in this match. It's going to be 4-3. <laughs> One team's going to go ahead by three goals by half time.
1: Did you watch Cam? Did you watch the Champions League final between Liverpool and Spurs? It was the most boring was final was ever. Worst, yeah, but that was Liverpool and Spurs. Ever. This is...
0: This is Real Madrid and Liverpool. So,
1: I think what Champions League tells you is when you expect it to be a a, a fiery game, mm-hmm. it just ends up being the exact opposite.
0: Yeah. Spurs, sp- what you tell me? What did Ferguson say? But that was Pochardino's first
1: cap. <laughs> it was an incredibly entertaining sight.
0: Okay, okay, okay. Okay, we've got a few minutes, though, to talk about um, one extreme to the other. At a match, actually, that's possibly more lucrative, even than the Champions League final, which is the Championship playoff. It's going to be between Huddersfield City and Nottingham Forest, or rather the other way around. And um, this is Bob Holmes's Nottingham Forest. Uh, I've seen some of Forest this season, and... Keish, I thought they would look really good actually very good counter attacking team and their manager is um is is an up and coming manager he's uh, he's got building up quite a reputation
1: Yeah forrest I mean I've got a soft spot for them for two reasons right one is the reputation that they have in english football um but also second is cuz um, there's James Garner there a man united player who's on loan at forest and has done tremendously well uh, and it'll be nice to see him um you know go all the way with Forrest, right but the thing is, this is one of those games that's going to be very, very difficult for Forrest. and I'll tell you, I'll tell you why. I can because there is now when you look at the past meetings between both sides. Um, I think this season alone in the championship, they played each other twice. Um, Forrest took one game, um, Huddersfield took the other. Um, I think one of the games was one nil, the other game was two one. So both games were relatively close, separated by a one goal margin only. Um, and you look and, and and you look at at their their positions on the table as well. They were just like what two points. Separating both teams. So they were thereabouts as well in terms of of, uh, consistency across a singular season in the championship. I think what could be a a determining factor is um, Huddersfield have obviously had a better late season charge. I think their last defeat was like in March or something. Until now, they've not lost. In the last two months, they've not lost a single game of football. They've won and drawn every single one of them. They've stayed. Unbeaten, um, they've tightened up defensively as well. They've kept score lines very manageable. Um, that could be an advantage for Huddersfield. But the other thing, there is a lot of pressure on Forest Camp. There is a lot of pressure because this is a team that everybody wants to see be uh, no return to the Premier League. I, I think at this point, if you were to throw these two teams to anyone, any football fan, regardless of whether they watch the Championship or not, everybody bar Huddersfield fans and maybe some other fans who generally don't like Forest would say that they want forest back because it's the romantic pick. And when you've got such amount of, of desire and expectation placed on your shoulders, it can be a heavy thing going into games like this because you've not been in the Premier League for years now and that's going to weigh on your shoulders. That's going to play in your minds. Whereas for Huddersfield, it's a different kind of game. It's more of an objective game of football. How do we just get the result that we need to to ensure that we return to the Premier League? And something that they... Just did what two seasons ago they were still in the Premier League. So, in that sense, I would, I, you know, the the game is going to be quite difficult for Forest. I want Nottingham Forest to go through as well on a personal level. But honestly, Cam, if you ask me to pick at this point, I would probably pick Huddersfield.
0: Yeah, oh, yeah, somebody's got a dog back there that's, that's clearly a Huddersfield fan.
1: Yeah, yeah.
0: Hey. Uh, <laughs> 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 mm-hmm. Okay, but Sean, you and me, I think that uh, unlike Keish, our lives are not completely dedicated to football. Uh, <laughs> and you'd, we'd be forgiven for not necessarily know the ins and outs of how championship teams play. But, uh, I mean,
2: do you have a preference as to who you would like to win? I mean, it's like Keish said earlier, there's a certain romance about Forrest. The the, the thing that strikes me the most is that, I don't know if the newer generation of football fans realise this, but Nottingham Forrest are two times... Champions League winners, <laughs> so, you would want you know this this legendary club, a historical club, to be back in the league. And I don't know how long it's been since they were last in the Premier League. I think I was a so. Never,
0: I don't think they've ever been in the Premier League. I think yeah. it was still the first division, wasn't it?
2: Probably, and I wasn't yeah. born yet, so yeah. I would love to see a team that I've not seen in the Premier League in the Premier League. For example, yeah. like Brentford when they came up, I was I didn't know anything about this club. But when I started watching them play, I was like, whoa, they play some really attractive football. I would want the same thing for Nottingham Forest. And like he said as well, there's a United player there. I will always support a club that has a United player in there and wish them the very best, especially when he's had such a good season. Oh, God. And that goes goes throughout the team as well. Don't forget this Forest team beat Arsenal in the FA Cup. Football fans are so
0: predictable. (laughs) Anyway. we're going to move on but we will be talking about manchester united quite a bit more actually as we go along and in a moment we're looking at a, we're going to be doing a, a review of the season and uh, looking for the best and the worst here on on the ball bfm 89.9 what about that clearance off the line how important did that turn out to be in
1: the end on the ball on bfm 89.9
0: and we're back with myself, Cam Ruslan, Kishan Sundaresan, and Sean Mahotra. and now we're going to be doing giving a, a chance for these two because it's their final show for the season, to to look back on the season, and um, we're going to give out some awards because I know the world is listening, and uh, this is one of the, one of the the moments that uh, people are expecting even more than the Ballon d'Or, which is what will the on the stroke off the ball pundits be giving? So I uh, Gogolin. Who isn't with us today? He he has given his answers already, but I'm gonna ask you the questions in a moment. The best player for the season in the Premier League, he says, is Kevin De Bruyne. Best manager, Eddie Howe, Stroke, Patrick Vieira. The best goal was Salas versus Manchester City. Best game, Liverpool against Liverpool 2, Man City 2. Best signing, Luis Diaz, and the biggest flop of the season, Manchester United. So I'm gonna go back and ask you the same questions and, and some others besides. So let's start with you, uh, Keish, with the best player of the season.
1: For me, it's Sonny mean, Tim. Um, look, I, I make no mistakes. I'm a big fan of Kevin De Bruyne. I think Mohamed Salah has been tremendous as well. Um, you've got Bernardo Silva, who, has, who I think has been incredible at back. Uh, sorry, incredible in, mid, in midfield for Man City. There's a whole bunch of others that probably deserve a shot. But for me, it's Young min Look, for an Asian player to win the... The, the golden boot and the Premier League. I'm surprised that not enough has been said about this achievement. Because he, he when he when any Asian player that makes the move to Europe, you're moving to Europe with a lot of weight on your shoulders. You're moving to Europe with a lot of inferiority complex on your shoulders as well. A lot of these things to address, a lot of these things to deal with. And he he came to Spurs like five, six seasons ago with very minimal expectations. I still remember I was in the office and, and there was this Twitter post that came out from Spurs with the hashtag, here comes the sun. Um, and, and it was for Son. It, it, that, that's, that's when they signed him. Um, but minimal expectations, even though he had, he had done tremendously at Leverkusen. But if you went back to anyone at Bayer Leverkusen and you asked them, do you think Son has the calibre to be the top scorer in the Premier League at some point? I'm not, I'm not sure if all of them would have said yes. Because even then, people didn't know what to expect out of him. They knew there was a good player in there, but they didn't know how, how great he could become. And, and for me, Cam, his trajectory over the last five years under, what, four different managers, three different managers, he's been consistent season in, season out with his output. And I'm so, so, so glad for the guy that he's finally getting rewarded one way or another. I, I know you know, winning the league or winning the Champions League, both times first have come quite close. That would have been the ultimate goal for for an Asian player. Uh, But in the absence of that, I think the Golden Boot at the very least. I was so upset because to me, it would have have been absolutely frustrating if Son ended his time at Spurs without nothing to show up for. It would have been very frustrating. So for him to finally win the Golden Boot, I think it's extraordinary. And in what has been such a difficult season for Spurs, the fact that he still scored that many goals, to me, Son Yunmin was the best player in the Premier
0: League this season. Yeah, I'm I, I, I am convinced by your argument. I also would add that I think that he would be a person you'd really want in the dressing room. Exactly, uh, he, yeah. He has a real personality that... Uh, yeah. He loves the game.
2: Mm. Uh, okay, Sean, uh, the best player? Who, who, you, who would you go for? I would go with Son too, but I would say, like, you know, if you judge it over the entire course of the season, you're taking into consideration the entire, like, amount they put in for the team in terms of effort I would go with Mo Salah not only was he you know sharing the golden boot with Son Heung-min he also got the most assists in the league I think yep. the, the only time his performances dropped off was after the AFCON uh, tournament where he dropped off a bit even then he still scored goals but he didn't score as much wasn't creating as much as before that but you look at his how much he put in for Liverpool this season in the league it's insane I said this earlier on about how how strong Liverpool are in every position. But when you look at that front three, right? Their, their main focus is always going to be Salah. Because he can score goals, he can create. He's a nightmare to play against. And he was consistently that way from the start of the season till the end of the season. And it hurts because, you know, I never want to say a Liverpool player is like, player of the season, but you have to appreciate how great he's been. And it's not like a one-season wonder. He's been doing it since he came back to England. So for me, it has to be Mo Salah. But strong shout for hyung sung Son as well, because none of his goals came from the spot. Every single... That's goal, true. Yeah. yeah. Was, you know, created by him or, or created by Kane. That dynamic he has with Kane is insane. I have not seen a, a great partnership in a long time between two players up forward well, but I mean, Mohamed Salah and Mane, Sadio Mane. That's not bad. I, I think that's great. But if you look at it, like two players who consistently are at the ends of each other's passes to score goals. It's always Kane to Son or Son to Kane, Kane to Son. It's beautiful to watch. And I feel for Son because he's not getting any younger. And I would love to see him win a big trophy, at least a trophy, before he he leaves the Premier League. So to to get this achievement again as an Asian to be the top scorer in the Premier League. That is a huge achievement. And I love, I mean, to segue a bit, I love the, the reception he got when he went back to South Korea. That's like a hero's welcome. He'll never forget it. Mm, mm. Okay, well, you're going kind of like
0: Muhammad Salah. Uh, and I'm convinced by your argument too. So and now I'm confused. Uh, let's move on then to uh, the manager of the season, Kishnan. Who, uh, so just to remind you, uh, Goglin says Eddie Howe, Patrick Vieira, he's gone down, down the league slightly.
1: I, I, I'm going to go with, with Patrick Vieira, only because um, in, in, a, in a Premier League world that is so cutthroat and one that doesn't afford you any time, uh, I think what Vieira has done, which is to change a team's style of football 180 degrees to what it is today, uh, has got to be one of the most astonishing things I've seen a manager do in the Premier League.
0: With, with much the same personnel as well.
1: I mean, he, he had to change things. I think the personnel had to change as well because Palace had to let go a lot of players. And that's the other thing, right? You're talking about a whole new squad that doesn't necessarily have the chemistry with each other. They don't kind of understand each other yet. So to forge a new playing identity so quickly within a team that don't really have that understanding yet is one of the most craziest things I've seen. And I mean, last season, just a season ago, Palace were probably one of the most conservative teams in the Premier League. You know, sitting back, long balls up front, hitting teams primarily just on the counter, like not exactly allowing players too much freedom on the ball, um, with the exception of maybe Wilfred Zaha alone. But but otherwise, it's been a conservative football team. And to see what Vieira has transformed them into, and also to see him do it under so much of judgment and and um, envy from, from the press, I think a lot of people undermined him. They looked at his job, at the work he did in the French League with, with Nice, and then the job that he did in, in, in the Major League Soccer. I think a lot of people were thinking, this guy is not really ready for the Premier League. And to see what they've done, to see what he's done, um, I think it's tremendous. Um, and Palace this year's and Palace this season also is the team with the most amount of, of draws in the Premier League. And the other team that also has the most amount of draws is Brighton. And my general opinion is that Brighton and Palace are the two teams where there were a lot of games where they were very dominant, but the games ended up being like draws. And if those games turned into victory, uh, victories, victories, uh, Palace would be so much higher up the table. So for me, I get the Eddie Howe argument. I think he's been phenomenal. Um, but Patrick Vieira for me.
0: Okay. All right. Uh, you've convinced me. So, uh, uh,
2: Sean, who, who, Manager of the Year. I'm going to go for a generic pick and say Pep. The only reason I say this, I I don't disregard anything Keith said. It's very true about what Patrick Vieira has done. But I look at it in the sense of, as a neutral, the Premier League went down to the final day. And to, to win the league by just a point, and literally coming back from two goals down, and scoring three goals in five minutes to win the league, it's astonishing. No team would have been able to push Liverpool this season. None, none of them. The fact that City were consistent and they started the season poorly. Don't forget, their first game of the season, they lost to Spurs. Pep has really pushed this team without a striker. Yes, you can say, you know, he has a lot of money. They buy a lot of players, blah, blah, blah. But to go consistently knowing that Klopp is right there chasing the quad and to win it in the fashion they did. I think Pep deserves a lot more credit this season compared to any other season he's been at City. You could say, you know, they, they missed out on the FA Cup and the League Cup and the Champions League, but we're talking about Premier League. He set up this team to work insanely hard to push Liverpool this season. So I think Pep deserves all the credit in the world and manager of the season. It's between Klopp and, and Pep for me this season. Not just because they were the top two teams, but because they were pushing each other consistently every week. One team could go above the other. You had to look behind your shoulder. And that's what I live for when I look at the Premier League. I want to see teams going after each other. Yeah, but if uh, Jurgen Klopp and Liverpool
0: win the Champions League by 4-3, as I predict, Mm -hmm. uh, with them being three goals down at halftime, and and I come back and ask you next week, surely you would both say Jurgen Klopp is the manager of the season?
1: Yeah, I would say manager of the season in Europe, for sure. Yeah, I I mean, I, I still think there's a very strong argument for Klopp to be the manager of the season, which is why... I don't get the hate that Klopp is getting when he was not he was because he actually won the award the actual award he won, mm-hmm. and I don't get the hate that he's getting because I think hate? what who, he's hates, done who hates who hates Jurgen Klopp show show no, them not, trust me <laughs> Cam. <laughs> a lot of them a lot of them trust really me, yeah which doesn't make sense to me either because what he's done with this Liverpool team just just a quick one Cam, huh, just a quick one camp. to put it into context Pep Guardiola's Barcelona side. The most successful Barcelona season ever is often referred to as 2008-2009 when they won the first Spanish side to win the treble. That season, they played 62 games in all competitions and they lost seven games. Arsenal's Invincibles in 2003-2004 played, what, 60 over games as well and they lost, they were unbeaten in the Premier League but they lost, um, I think it was seven games in all competitions. Sorry, six games in all competitions um, because they lost three games in the Champions League Two in the League Cup, um, one in the FA Cup. This Liverpool side camp, as of now, has played 62 games this season and lost only three games. That is astonishing. And how do you not look at something like that and be absolutely in awe? Like, it's something that perhaps Barca didn't do. It's something that Arsenal, Arsenal didn't do. I mean, ultimately, trophies are the only things that will matter in the history books, I'm sure. But as football fans, I think we can do better than just brush these things aside because these things are still astonishingly difficult to accomplish. Yeah,
0: because I'm I'm not a Liverpool fan per se, but Jurgen Klopp to me is...
1: Yeah. Yeah.
0: it goes kind of beyond football,
1: really. Exactly,
0: yeah. Uh, uh, Well, uh, OK, let's see if we can get through the list then. Uh, Best goal of the season. My memory is not good enough to be able to to conjure this up I saw Son score something just like last week which I thought was fantastic but uh, best goal of the season Sean can you remember this far back?
2: I'm going to be biased and say Ronaldo's goal against Spurs I think that was an outstanding goal I mean there were so many great goals this season the one that really stood out for me was Ronaldo's goal against Spurs the way he took it on the volley and went straight into the top corner that was an outstanding goal
1: yeah that was Uh, my top goal okay Keish yeah, I mean, I think over the season, Cam, um, I think in multiple episodes, I've made my feelings clear about what I think of the Ronaldo signing and why I think, you know, as much as I absolutely love Ronaldo, I, 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 not, I still stand on my ground that I don't think it was the right signing for the club. But you cannot deny purely from a, a moment point of view, Ronaldo's goal in his first game back for United at Old Trafford against Newcastle, that second goal... Because on his first game back for Old Trafford, the atmosphere there was something that Old Trafford had not seen in years. There was a real sense of optimism and there was a real sense of just pride going on at Old Trafford on that day. And his first goal was a bit awkward because it was a bit of a tap in. There was a deflection and sure. But that second goal, it was almost as if everyone at Old Trafford had been transported back by 10 years to around two thousand and eight. Because what you saw with Ronaldo making that late run and getting that late ball from Luke Shaw and him sprinting past an entire Newcastle defence and then smashing it into the bottom corner and then running right to the corner flag. From a purely from a moment point of view, it was probably one of the most incredible football moment of the season. And for me, that was the best goal of the season. Did you cry? <laughs> I, mean, I, 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 mean, I I did not. I did not cry. But, did you, Sean? But, did you cry? No, no, no. I was <laughs> emotional. It was emotional. Yeah, but but it, it, it was literal goosebumps. It was literal goosebumps.
0: Yeah. Oh, okay, okay. Uh, okay, I'm going to skip a couple, but I want to go, I really want to ask this one of you two. It's the best signing of the season, be it the summer signing, or indeed if it was a winter signing. Um, Keisha, start with you.
1: Um, I, I'm going to go with Christian Romero. I think um, he's a centre-back that Spurs have lacked for a very, very long time now. Um, he, he He's he had a reputation in Atalanta already. He was such a gritty centre-back. Um, has a bit of a nastiness about him. And that's, I think, exactly what Spurs have been lacking in the defence. There's too many good guys. Over the years, there's just been too many good guys at, at centre-back. And people have been able to drive past them way too easily from your Eric Dyers to... I mean, I'm a big fan of you know, Toby Alderweireld. I'm a big fan of Gian Battongio. I love Davison Sanchez, but I don't think any of them have that bit of nastiness that you need to sometimes just survive in the Premier League to grind out to stop you know incredible attackers. But I think Christian Romero has that, and I think what he's done for this first team this year to me has been phenomenal. There was there were certain games when I watched them and I'm like, wow, like how did some of the other clubs miss out on this guy? because he's clearly such an exceptional signing and You've got to give uh, credits to Fabio Paratici, who was the um, sporting director at Spurs, because, you know, it, it was it was all him. He was the guy that was so adamant about bringing um, Christian Romero, and I think he's been a tremendous, tremendous signing for Spurs.
0: Oh, OK. Hey, uh, so, Sean, uh, I'm afraid very briefly, well, who are you all signing, apart from Cristiano Ronaldo,
2: of course? <laughs> I'm going to go with another Spurs player, Dejan Kulusevski. Outstanding. Oh, yeah. outstanding outstanding yeah. i have yeah. nothing else but to say, an outstanding
0: player yeah yeah i'm really looking forward to watching to see how he progresses and how that triumvirate up front i think could be really exciting um okay uh, in a moment though we're going to come back and we i'm going to give i'm going to give these people the job of being the manager of many different clubs and uh, see what they're going to do here on on the ball bfm 89.9 it is a fine goal fine had a fine goal
1: on the ball on bfm
0: 89 point nine it's on the ball with uh, Keishnan and Sean, and now um, we've got the summer coming up, and for some people, bizarrely, the summer transfer season is more exciting than the actual football season I have discovered some people uh, Keishnan, you're nodding your head you must really do you really enjoy the the transfer time
1: um <laughs> usually no but this season yes because there's a lot of changes that's about to happen
0: okay well I want to ask about the changes that are going to be happening and I want to talk about some of the bigger clubs and what can we expect to see in the summer transfer season and I think we have to start with Manchester United because Manchester United still got money they're going to be having a new manager and they've got a lot of well I don't know what we call them deadwood in the uh, team so uh, it seems that Ten Hag is not going to be the manager after all. Instead, it's going to be a joint managing between Kishnan Sundari-san and Sean Malhotra. The, uh, the facts just came through. So I'll start with you, Sean. And you two are going to have to sort out your differences, obviously. Um, but, uh, Sean, if, if you were the manager then, and <laughs> what, what would you do? Bearing in mind that a lot of these players, these United players, are on fat contracts for a long time
2: and you can't necessarily get rid of them. <laughs> but if you could if I could I mean of course I'd kick out a whole lot of them <laughs> that's a yeah. clear thing but I think the realistic thing to look at is there's a lot of talk about you know the very little amount of money that United are going to have to invest in the team the great thing is United loaned out a lot of players this season or should I say the last season and you're going to have a lot of youngsters back players that have a chance at playing in the team which I think should be given the chance you know you, you've tried with this playing these senior players who are on fat contracts and what have they done? They've produced zeros out of tens out of this season. So give a chance to the youth and also bring in experience. I I, I think of the Real Madrid model, which I really like. You have a midfield three of Casemiro, Cruz and Modric, but if they get and in, in the summer, that's your another three in midfield that they have for probably the next eight to 10 years in Valverde, Kamavinga, and Swameni, which I think should be the same model that United go for. You want to bred in, you know, seniority with these these young players. And there's a lot that's been said about Ronaldo. But I think if he stays for another season, doesn't play a huge part maybe, but his influence in that team, if you bring in kids into that team, is going to help a lot. I don't think it's going to be a detriment to the younger ones. I think it's going to be a massive boost. Great example is Anthony Alanga. You know, you have the senior figure that is considered a legend in football to look at. And these are the kind of things you need. Whether it's Timber that comes into United, Frankie de Jong or whoever, you want experienced players who are young that have a huge future ahead of them that could actually become really good. I'm not looking at, oh, let's get Lewandowski. He's one of the best strikers in the league in the world right now. No, look at players that you can bred for the next five to 10 years, maybe. That's what you should be looking at.
0: But you're talking like Arteta's Arsenal project then?
2: Not really. You see, that's the difference between Arteta's Arsenal project and Real Madrid. Arsenal do not have experienced players. What do I mean by experienced players? I mean playing in the Champions League, fighting for league titles, fighting for trophies in general. Arsenal doesn't have that. Who who in Arsenal's team is is known for that? They don't have that. You know, if you look at Real Madrid, they have winners everywhere. Champions League winners everywhere. United has that in Ronaldo.
0: Okay, so uh, Kish, so Sean's uh, advocating a kind of mixture of experience and youth. Ten Hag, though, he's used to the Ajax model and Ajax has a youth machine. He knows what they are like and how they play, but he doesn't know anything about these young players at United.
1: Yeah, I mean, there's an exceptional clip of Eric Ten Hag just absolutely losing it at an Ajax player for not tracking back, for not... Working his socks off. Noah Lang. Um, uh, <laughs> Noah Lang, yeah. And, yeah. and because Ten Hag is, is a big believer in everybody on the pitch, regardless of where you play, you are part of a system. And that means you've got to fulfill certain responsibilities. And when I, when I look at this United setup, to me, there's, there's three big issues. One is you need a midfielder by hook or crook. If someone tells me United can only sign one player this summer, it's got to be a holding midfielder. You, you cannot run away another season without a holding midfielder. You need a holding midfielder. But secondly, um, I think United need to sort out the fullback position as well. Uh, especially, I think, uh, maybe on the right, because I'm not a very big fan of wan Bisaka, So that will be something that Tanhak will be looking at. But I think the biggest challenge that Eric Ten Hag has at the moment is Ronaldo. And obviously, right now in the press conference, he's been very positive when talking about Ronaldo. But there is there is a reason to be, to be cautious when it comes to the Ronaldo discussion. Bear in mind that This is not a player that fulfills the style of play that Ten Hag generally likes. Um, And so, if he can't really fit that system, maybe he's got to play a bit-part role. But then again, Ronaldo is also a guy who doesn't want to play a bit-part role. He doesn't like playing bit-part roles. We've seen how he is sulk at Man United when he's been subbed off early on. We've seen how his facial expressions generally change. Um, Even when he plays for Portugal, he's always frustrated when when he gets dragged off the pitch. Um, he's also a guy that um, reportedly said no to Antonio Conte mm. because that could potentially mean he's playing time dropping or him having to play in a different style. So he's a character and he's also a bit of a divisive character. I mean, anyone who read the athletic breakdown um, uh, uh, of United's second half of the season will know that um, Ronaldo held meetings, um, team meetings, with Ralph Ragnick about possibly playing with a front two because he wanted his load to be reduced. But those meetings excluded Harry Maguire, even though he was the club captain. So you've got a senior figure, you know, undermining your club captain's influence. So you've got a whole bunch of stuff around Cristiano Ronaldo at the moment. Yes, he gives you goals, but only if you play the way that suits him. And everybody else has got to adjust themselves to that. So I think the Ronaldo conundrum is something that Eric Dunhawk has to address from very early on. And I'm pretty sure the guy is smart um, and, and he, he, has, he probably knows this already and he's, he's probably working on it already. So that is, that for me, the biggest thing that he's got to deal with going into next season.
0: Yeah. Uh, well, an abrasive Dutchman shouting at stars who earn millions. I'm sure that'll turn out fine. <laughs> what could possibly go wrong? Hey, uh, Sean, Liverpool. If it ain't broke, don't fix it. But at the same time, none of these players are getting any younger. And I get the impression with, with uh, Klopp's football, it requires speed and stamina. Skill, but speed and stamina. And as you get older, you lose those things. So he's going to have to regenerate this in the way that Ferguson did so brilliantly. Um, are we
2: at that time now where we're going to see a regeneration? I think in the coming months and years, you will, because you look at the signings of For example, uh, Luis Diaz. You look at signing Jota. These are young players that they've got for many more years ahead. Like, there's rumours about Sadio Mane maybe leaving Liverpool after the Champions League final. I don't think he will, but there's a chance. And Salah still not signing a new contract. I don't think Jürgen Klopp is entirely worried because they've got a great scouting system at that club, they know how to find gems. And they're only going to sign players that fit Klopp's style of play. They're not going to go out and buy four or five players. Klopp's going to identify maybe two to three players and be like, these are the guys that are going to take us forward. In that sense, I'm not worried. I mean, I'm worried as a United fan, but I'm not worried in the sense that this Liverpool team is going to drop off. As long as Klopp is there and the team follows the way he's been going with his signings, they don't need to worry. They've got youth in Konate at the back. They've got youth in, in Elliott in midfield. Forward now, you have Luis Diaz and Jota and there are going to be more players coming through. Robertson and Trent Alexander-Arnold are going to be there, I think, till the day they retire. You know, This team is set up for the future and they will only add on to it with even better young players coming through. If they bring in Jude Bellingham, they have one of the best midfields in Europe.
1: <laughs> yeah. and
2: that, that's a player that can play for the next 10 to 15 years if you wanted to.
0: Ah. Uh-huh. Okay, well uh, Keish then uh briefly though, uh same with Man City. If it ain't broke, don't fix it. But they've added Haaland. They have a striker. Who who knew they needed one? Uh they're a complete package now, everything done.
1: Yeah, and, and this thing, right? Um, it isn't just about about Erling Haaland. Um I think it's it's great that they've got Erling Haaland up front. And the good thing is they're they they will not be fully dependent on him because even if there's even if Haaland struggles in the beginning, which is Highly unlikely, but even if he does, uh, two things. First, they've already got uh, a style of play that gets them goals anyways. But more importantly, it's not just Haaland. They've got Julian Alvarez who's coming in. And anyone who watched River Plate's game over the last one week will know that um, uh, Alvarez just caught, like, what, six goals in a game? Oh um, and, he, and he's <laughs> going to leave River Plate. He's, and, and if you look at those six goals, you will know just how wonderful of a player he truly is. And him coming in, in into City as well. I think it's it's been forgotten by a lot because of the Haaland fanfare. But make no mistakes, next season, don't be surprised if Julian Alvarez also becomes a fundamental part of Man City's attack.
0: Okay. Well, we're not gonna get through every single team, unfortunately. So I'm gonna wrap it up there. But I'm gonna I'm just gonna ask
2: you two guys, has this been a good season? Sean? In a neutral standpoint, definitely. Because you want a, a tight affair. I, I would say in the Premier League, you want a tight affair. And it went down to the final day and City had another Aguero moment <laughs> with Gundogan. And as a neutral, neutral, it was nice to, to see how that ended. I, I want more seasons like this. I don't want a team that's just going to run away with the league kind of thing. So I, it was a lot of excitement.
0: Uh, yeah, unless that team is Manchester United. Oh, it, for sure. It, for throughout, sure. Throughout, throughout the entire nineties, you know, <laughs> you, were, you were quite happy with that, weren't you? It was cool. have you enjoyed this season?
1: Yeah, I, I mean, I've tremendously enjoyed it. I mean, from a United point of view, yes, frustrating, but purely from a footballing point of view, this has been an incredible season. And make no mistakes: the final day of the season, it wasn't just the league um, title that hadn't been sorted out; the race for. For top four. I mean, yeah, to some extent, Spurs had wrapped it up, but it was still on the line in case anything happened. I think the Europa League positions also were on the line. And at the same time, you had the relegation battle, uh, which was still on the line on final day. And if you're a football fan, you can't really ask for much more than that. And on a broader sense, um, AC Milan finally winning a league title after 10 years, which is a romantic achievement as well. Um, you've got uh you've got uh uh Eintracht Frankfurt winning a European trophy after what 22 years you've got AS Roma winning their first ever European trophy um so there's there's been a lot of romantic accomplishments and you just hope that the perfect cherry on the top for the season would be Nottingham Forest making it back uh, to the Premier League
0: yeah yeah and 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 bursting out of that cake would be Bob Holmes (laughs) if 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 they win (laughs) so uh well that brings us to the end of um well it's on the ball but you two guys we'll see you again um come next season but for now it's uh please join us on monday when we look back on the champions league final and the championship playoff and indeed the entire season but for now it's on the ball bfm 89.9
1: And he's been absolutely brilliant. On the ball on BFM 89.9.
0: Thank you for listening to this podcast. To find more great interviews, go to bfm.my
1: or find us on iTunes. BFM 89.9, The Business Station.